Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for this podcast is Thursday, September the 4th, 2014. And we are moving on with the second of our multi-part series of podcasts from this year's 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held in Hanoi, Vietnam, between August 11th and 16th of this year. Now, in this podcast... We have a little bit of a theme going. We're going to be talking about the importance of infectious disease and other microorganisms in primate conservation. So we're going to hear from three scientists, including Tom Gillespie, Julio Cesar Bica Marquez, and Joe Belitsky. And the topics are going to range from large-scale multidisciplinary projects in in Africa, uh, investigating disease transmission in complex landscapes, including wild and domestic animals, humans and various other components, uh, in addition to the importance of outbreaks of yellow fever in New World monkeys, particularly howler monkeys, and what importance that might have for conservation efforts of those species. And finally, we'll hear about the importance of the microbiome, uh, especially the gut microbiome, which is really a topic, a hot topic in science these days, particularly as it relates to human, animal, and environmental health. And so you're going to hear Dr. Belitsky talk about the importance of micro, the microbiome in thinking about primate conservation. The first interview in this installment of the podcast is with Dr. Tom Gillespie. Now, Dr. Gillespie, along with his former graduate advisor, Dr. Colin Chapman, now of McGill University, were among those spearheading what we might call this modern wave of research into parasites and infectious diseases of primates. Also among the first to recognize the importance of monitoring and understanding the role of infectious disease in primate conservation. So coming a long way from earlier days cataloging intestinal parasites of Gwenins and Colbines in Kibale National Park, He's now Associate Professor at Emory University in the Departments of both Environmental Sciences and Environmental Health, which is in the School of Public Health. He also has links to the Center for Disease Control uh, through Emory's Global Health Institute. In this interview, you're going to hear Dr. Gillespie talk about two large projects he has ongoing, focusing on the importance of infectious disease in primate biodiversity conservation and public health. So we have several large projects at the moment that are interdisciplinary, and that deal with issues of disease transmission, either in landscapes where um, we have a lot of overlap between um, the movement or activities of people, livestock, and wild primates, uh, or where the landscapes are changing. And we're trying to understand how those changes are affecting uh, transmission dynamics. The two that uh, are most exciting in in regards to the number of moving components are the Gambe EcoHealth Project, uh, which uh, builds on the long-term work at at Gambe Stream National Park in Tanzania. Um, That is a collaboration uh, that's coordinated by myself along with Dominic Travis, who is a veterinary epidemiologist at the University of Minnesota, and Elizabeth Lonsdorf, who's a behaviorist at uh, Franklin and Marshall College. Um, that effort began out of uh, a recognition that, um, that, that infectious disease is a major aspect of um, the risk assessment for the Gambe chimpanzees. And uh, in, in response to that, we wanted to have a multi-pronged approach to understanding uh, how those threats could be mitigated. Um, the 
the American Society for Primatology's uh, interdisciplinary symposium this year will actually focus on that project. And so we'll have a number of speakers talking about what's been happening with SIV in that system, uh, other pathogens, uh, especially respiratory pathogens, considering uh, the issues that have occurred at other sites uh, where there's been true confirmation and uh, some of the cases where there's a suggestion that there have been respiratory outbreaks in the past. Um, the other uh, major project is in Ranamafan uh, National Park in Madagascar, and there, um, there are two initiatives that are coming together. It's uh, the, the long-term work of the Center of El Bayo um, on biodiversity and conservation, linking to the work of Pivot, which is a new non-for-profit focused on providing quality health care for people on the district level. So um, the idea is to actually go from more or less zero health care, which has been the case due to uh, recent political activity in Madagascar, and ramp it up to what would be expected based on the, the principle of health as a human right. So there, there's a large uh, literature in economics about poverty traps and the idea that people find themselves stuck in poverty traps due to a lack of health care and a dependence on natural resources. And so that when they have health problems, they end up making unsustainable choices that take them deeper and deeper into the poverty trap. Um, it's a concept that is used to actually make economic decisions on national and global levels, but um, there's not been an empirical test of whether or not this actually works in real systems. And so this is a perfect opportunity to look at this. So um, the economist who I'm working with on this project is Matt Bonds, who is at Harvard Medical School, um, and we've gotten a, a grant from the Gates Foundation to help to implement that, along with uh, support from the Hernstein Foundation to actually do the, the health intervention itself. So there certainly are seemingly a huge number of moving components involved in those projects, and that probably requires a huge amount of human power as well. But we wanted to ask Dr. Gillespie about what kinds of things they're actually doing on the ground to make these projects happen. Day-to-day -day activities can be highly varied. <laughs> so um, in, in Gambe, sometimes it means uh, doing door-to-door -door interviews, so using survey instruments. To, to actually look at risk factors for disease transmission, um, working with uh, people from the Ministry of Health to actually collect diagnostic specimens. Um, it can mean setting uh, live rodent traps in homes to collect rodents the next day uh, to test them for pathogens that they may be exposing people to. Uh, it can mean going into the, the agricultural areas of these families to, um, to sample their livestock along with our veterinary staff. Um, or it can mean following the chimpanzees for the day and, and getting their samples. Um, in Gambe, because the chimps are, are well habituated, we're actually able to collect observational health data as well. So we have you know, a veterinary checklist, and we can look at what's happening with those animals um, on a day-to-day -day basis and then link that uh, behavioral data and health data to uh, infection status. 
in uh, in Madagascar, there are, there are many components that are similar in that sense of you know working within the communities, uh, going out into the field to um, to work with the lemurs to understand also how their health may be threatened by interaction with humans. Um, but in in Madagascar, because we're working on such a, a large scale at the district level, um, there's a lot more activity that requires regular meetings with um, the Ministry of Health, as well as uh, coordinating large-scale trainings and workshops so that we can show people how things have been done elsewhere where there's been success. So I recently took a delegation from the Malagasy Ministry of Health to Rwanda, which is one of Partners in Health success sites, to show what works and for people to see on the ground what this will look like in the future. So the sheer scale of these projects just, just described by Dr. Gillespie is obviously immense. And it's really important to reiterate, as, as he mentioned, um, that the foundation of these projects really rests on the infrastructure that's been built over decades at both of these field sites. You know, the, the work at Gombe goes back, obviously, to the works of Jane Goodall and then you know, five, six decades of research on the chimpanzees there. And then at Ranomafan in Madagascar, you know, a site which research activities and conservation activities have largely been driven in recent history by tireless works of Dr. Patricia Wright, um, who, by the way, we wanted to get on the podcast uh, during this series, but unfortunately just couldn't get in the right place in the right time to secure that interview, as often happens at conferences like this. But there was actually a session during the Congress one evening, which was showing the recent IMAX movie in tribute to Dr. Wright and the activities of, uh, of herself and the Center Val Bio more generally, which focus on conservation, of course, research uh, on the primates and other animals in the area, but also on providing education um, and improving the skill set of locals so that they can help themselves improve their own qualities of life. And so you heard Dr. Gillespie in this interview talk about poverty traps and, and how that has really important implications for health of the communities. And so Dr. Gillespie's work is really expanding on this already existing infrastructure, um, just bringing in the disease component. And so to end the interview, we just wanted to ask Dr. Gillespie if he had any prospects for the future. I mean, where does this work go? Does he have any end goals or end points set for this? Or is it just really still way too early um, to even consider that? For me, the, the issue, I don't, I don't typically see an end point. I mean, I, the way I look at things is we, we have a lot of work to do for both biodiversity conservation um, and primates are the part of that that's closest to my heart um, and for human health in these systems. And there are times when the interests of human health and biodiversity conservation don't meet up, but the goal is always to try to find synergy there. So that was Dr. Tom Gillespie of Emory University telling us about his work in infectious disease, biodiversity conservation, and public health. In our next interview, we're joined by Dr. Julio Cesar Bica Marquez, who's professor of ecology, animal behavior, and primatology at the Pontifico Catholic University of Rio Grande do Sul in Brazil. Now, he's going to start off here by telling us about his general research program. Basically, I work with ecology, behavior, cognition, and conservation biology of New World monkeys. My major focus is on howler monkeys, but I have also worked with tamarins, titi monkeys, owl monkeys, night monkeys, and the marmosets. We have been using both observational methods in the wild and in captivity, but also experimental designs to study aspects of cognitive ecology, social foraging, and more recently, artificial nest predation by howler monkeys. 
So as you can gather, Dr. Bika Marquez does run a rather diverse research group there, but he was at the Congress this week giving a plenary talk about his more recent work relating to the importance of yellow fever in howler monkey conservation. Now, most of you should be familiar with yellow fever as an important medical concern for humans, or for anyone outside of Africa who's traveled to the continent will know that you have to get vaccinated for that virus uh, before entering. What you may not have known is that howler monkeys are actually incredibly sensitive to the virus themselves. Now, yellow fever is caused by a virus transmitted by infected mosquitoes, which move the virus from animal to animal or human to human. And when it was first introduced to the New World, um, probably through slave ships from Africa, it caused extreme population declines in local, local howler monkeys. And so Dr. Bika Marquez was here talking about some of the prospects, perhaps, or why we might or we should, in fact, be concerned about this disease and these disease outbreaks in howler monkey populations in South America, specifically in Brazil, as far as his work is concerned. After a recent outbreak of yellow fever in South Brazil in 2008 and 2009, we have shown that about 80% of the populations were lost because of the disease. And after running in a population viability analysis, we have been able to predict that if other outbreaks occur in the near future, this species probably will have a very hard time to survive in the long term. So 80% mortality is certainly bleak in any outbreak situation. But what's exacerbating this problem is the already existing issue of conservation concern of habitat fragmentation. And so when they talk about these population viability analyses, they're actually talking about a metapopulation, which is made up of a number of isolated or near-isolated subpopulations with some degree of gene transfer between populations. And what's problematic about that, of course, you need this contact between subpopulations to facilitate gene flow and this to maintain genetic diversity, and which is really important for the viability of the, the, you know, those entire populations with that metapopulation. But at the same time, if you get too much transfer, which means too much contact, then you have facilitation of the disease itself. And with 80% mortality, you can imagine where that goes. So they have kind of this sweet spot, which they've tried to figure out, or a Goldilocks zone in some ways. You could think of it between 0 and 1% um, transfer between those subpopulations as a, an important um, marker for persistence of the population. So habitat fragmentation is obviously one way in which humans impact the future viability of primate populations. But here, Dr. Bika Marquez is going to talk about an even more direct um, form of this, population regulation, I guess you could call it, uh, in the howler monkey populations during the outbreak. During the yellow fever outbreak, also people were killing monkeys afraid of the disease, although this is an illegal practice in Brazil. And then I was forced to launch a campaign that I called Protect Our Guardian Angels because the, the howler monkeys are important sentinels of the circulation of the virus in the environment. They are the most sensitive New World primates to this virus and so their presence warns the, the authorities, the health authorities, that the virus is around and then they can launch vaccination campaigns and to take people from the region that cannot take the vaccine. This campaign was quite successful in changing the message 
that the media was delivering, but had only a small influence on the people's thoughts. I think most of us can probably sympathize with him here. It never is as easy as one would hope to change human minds or behavior. But we do wish Dr. Baker Marquez the best of luck in his future efforts to conserve Brazil's howler monkey populations. So we ended the interview by asking Dr. Pico Marquez whether in the absence of these yellow fever outbreaks he had any related ongoing work. After the yellow fever outbreak we also began working on self-medication and we found that a group of howler monkeys that used to eat several plant species that have medicinal properties, they although they were present in a field site where they have contact with several domestic animals and also humans, they contain just a single cystode. We believe that the food that they eat is protecting them against other parasites that could be expected in such a landscape. So that was Dr. Bika Marquez, plenary speaker at this year's IPS Congress, joining us to talk about his work relating to yellow fever outbreaks in howler monkey populations. In our final interview in this installment of the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Joe Belitsky. Dr. Belitsky's had a rather interesting career, spending 25 years in primate medicine in the United States National Primate Research Center system, then spent time as a chief veterinary officer for NASA, followed by funding high-risk research for the United States government and currently working as a consultant in technology and science. And he's going to be talking in this, in this interview about something that draws from his vast experience in primate biomedicine, specifically as it relates to conservation, welfare, and management. So here's Dr. Belitsky telling us the problem. Yesterday I talked about um, uh, some of the traumatic episodes that happen to animals that are confiscated, but before they're confiscated, typically they're also poached. So we're talking about a neonate great ape that typically loses its mother because it's hunted and killed. The child, the infant is taken into captivity by poachers, um, held in probably less than acceptable conditions. Um, we've seen them come in thin, emaciated, bald. Um, some of them we know have lived in a box for months. Some have lived in a bag for months. Um, some have been chained up for months. Um, eventually the authorities find them, um, take them away, and confiscation probably is as big a stress to them as everything else because now they're changing lives again. And then they ultimately end up in a sanctuary. So listeners are probably going to be familiar with this tragic and ongoing problem, particularly as it relates to primate conservation, although they may not all be familiar with the details of that transitionary period um, between confiscation of the animals and eventual placement uh, in the sanctuary setting, for example, or even reintroduction into the wild. And Dr. Belitsky is going to bring in here kind of his own view. It's a different view than normally held uh, about that quarantine process, and he's going to be talking about that right now. What I talked about yesterday really was what are the possible implications for the microbiome um, with the stressors because babies at birth have no microorganisms whatsoever. They pick them up in the birth canal through lactation, through contact with the mother, and peers, conspecifics, that live nearby, and then they're poached. So now they pick up a microbiome from the new people that have them, their children. They may, if they're not been weaned, even be have a, a human wet nurse that nurses them, but they're put on foods that are probably not ideal. And again... Food and nutrition alters the microbiome dramatically. So 
it's again making this major microbiological transformation in the gut that affects all kinds of health, has all kinds of health implications. These animals eventually, hopefully, will be discovered by the authorities, confiscated, and that's as big a trauma because now they have another life, life event that's changing. Um, again, they're put on new food, new people, new environment, new water source. A whole new set of microbes comes into play, and their gut has to rearrange completely. And they may be held in captivity under those circumstances for t- extended periods based on how quickly it goes to trial, if it, if it ever goes to trial. And then they ultimately end up in a sanctuary. And I talked yesterday really about what we, do, what we need to do with quarantine because the old model for quarantine is you isolate the animal for 31 days. They get three successive negative TB tests. Um, you do some serology. You get them on a new diet. You get them on a new water supply. You get them used to new caregivers. And you basically make sure they're not going to take anything to the other animals that are old and established. And my point is that the old established animals are stable. They're microbiome stable. They've, they've shared each other's diseases. They've, they've been in contact with one another. And they're probably at much lower risk than the newcomer is to picking up something from them. And so this was a qu- the question is, do we need to rearrange the way we perceive quarantine? And, you know, even to the point of introducing the newcomer to fecal material from the group in the, during the quarantine period, which is totally contrary to the way people normally think about it, but it exposes them to the microbiome they're about to move into. And do you want to do it abruptly, or do you do, want to do it in graduated steps so this animal has a little bit better chance of adapting um, without dying? Um, you know, infants coming into the, going through those circumstances or great apes under two or three years of age um, normally would be dependent on their mother for protection and succor. They, they don't get it. They're, you know, they're living in this artificial world with stressors. So, you know, we squeeze their adrenal glands as hard as we can, and then we disrupt their microbiology completely, and we say, well, they should do okay. New food, new diet, new people, new microbes, uh, and new family. And so you know, the whole thing is, if we're going to get them that far down the trail, get them to move into a sanctuary, let's make sure we get them there well and alive and well integrated. So the microbiome is currently a flourishing field of science, um, with study after study appearing, particularly as it relates to human-associated microbiota. And so we've learned a lot about what causes variation in microbial communities um, that include things like the genetics of the individual and environment, its linkages, and also things like diet and nutrition, association with other animals, some of which Dr. Blitzky talked about uh, just previously. But we also know how important these associated microbiota are for our health. And that's the context in which Dr. Blitzky is talking here. Now, I can tell you from personal experience in Hanoi during this Congress uh, what can happen to your health when your microbiota, particularly your gut microbiota, is disturbed from its natural state, uh, as any, uh, any traveler to exotic locations should probably also be able to confirm. Um, that night after interviewing Dr. Blitzky, I was out and had probably some fresh vegetables that I probably should have ignored, and the next day was quite rough, uh, barely making it back for my own talk. So anyways, we can clearly see what disturbances in the microflora can do. Now, we know much less about um, non-human animal microbiota, but of course, studies are appearing all over the place that are enlightening us in this area. And I think where we expect to see a real surge is in the area of primates uh, and primates, other primate, non-human primate-associated microbiota. And so there was a few researchers here, notably Jonathan Clayton, who's a doctoral candidate at the University of Minnesota, studying, well, launching this huge project called the uh, Primate Microbiome Project. And so they were presenting a few studies from that, as well as a a small, short symposium about that. 
um, encouraging researchers to join their cause and submit samples, and hopefully we'll get a really good catalog um, of what kind of organisms are associated with primates around the world in different settings. So um, Jonathan Clayton talked about the relationship between variation in microbiome, gut microflora, and the conditions the animals were living in. So maybe zoo-housed or captive or semi-free-ranging animals versus animals in the wild. As Dr. Bliski mentioned, you know, exposing these confiscated animals or quarantine animals to a new microbiome as a way to help integrate or ease that transition into a new environment is really contrary to the traditional beliefs of what quarantine is supposed to be about. But in light of all this evidence of the importance of the associated microbiota, um, this may clearly be a necessary step to take. And so we wanted to know um, Dr. Bliski's perspective on you know, where we stand in this process and how likely uh, are his ideas and the ideas of emerging science of the importance of the microbiome to be accepted and implemented into this process. I think it's got a real good chance of being considered because um, I got a lot of comments back after the presentation um, that we never thought of that before. And that was one of the reasons for it, is to, you know, is to bring some of the new science and ways of thinking about you know, what's going on with us physiologically uh, to primatologists who live in a, in a less biomedical world, um, people who manage sanctuaries, who do reintroductions, um, you know, they're not keeping up in the biomedical literature. They're just trying to keep their programs funded, keep animals alive day to day. So this meeting is real good at bringing, you know, new technology, um, new biomedical discoveries you know, to the world of primatology for the benefit of the primates at hand. So that was Dr. Joe Belitsky telling us about the importance of the microbiome in primate care. So I'd like to thank our three guests today. And for all the listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed the program and learned something about the importance of infectious disease and microbes in primate conservation. Please also stay tuned for our next podcast in this series, which will probably be released about a week from today, when we're going to focus more generally on issues surrounding primate conservation. So we're going to be talking with Tatiana Hummel from the University of Kent, uh, Debbie Cox of the Jane Goodall Institute, Miles Woodruff, also of the Jane Goodall Institute and a graduate student at Durham University, Noel Rowe, the author of that, that iconic book, The Pictorial Guide to the Living Primates, and finally, Dr. Augustine Basabose, a primatologist from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So we hope you do join us next week. Until then... You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primate cast.